As we've just read Leviticus chapter 3 and chapter 7 concerning the peace offering, as we consider this theme today, as we approach the preaching of the word, let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise and honor you, we exalt you, and we hallow your name, and we take confidence now in the hope that Jesus Christ is our great prophet, priest, and king, and we pray that our Lord Jesus Christ, our ascended prophet by his spirit, would teach us all things needful for our salvation this day through the preached word. We take confidence in his once-for-all atonement for our sins and his ever-mediation for us at your right hand and in the power of the Spirit that he sent down upon Pentecost and the very person of the Spirit of God who indwells us. And we ask now, in our own weakness, in our own sinful flawedness, would you please be glorified and honored and magnified By the grace and work of your spirit and under the praise of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we study the peace offering in the book of Leviticus, the main theme of it can be summed up in one phrase that's repeated throughout the Psalms, and that is, oh, give thanks to the Lord. This is what the peace offering is about. You might have heard about a World War I Medal of Honor recipient, Eddie Rickenbacker, who was an ace fighter pilot in World War I and who was awarded for his bravery. Years later, during World War II, he and some other men had gone on a mission in the South Pacific, and they were on a B-17 airplane on October 21, 1942. They had to crash land their airplane in the middle of the South Pacific Ocean, hundreds of miles from land with no radio contact, They had to bail out into life rafts and try their best to survive at sea. There were eight men. They only had four oranges to eat among eight men. And eight days later, they were beginning to starve. They were extremely dehydrated. They were being baked by the sun during the day and and frozen at night. And Eddie Rickenbacker, in his autobiography, said that he was laying there in that life raft and he pulled his hat down over his eyes and he felt something on his head. A seagull had landed on his head, and they didn't know how because they were hundreds of miles from land. But he said every eye of the other men went onto that seagull. That was their only chance of survival. He grabbed it. He wrung its neck and killed it. He cut it up with his knife. They uh, took out its feathers, and those men ate of that meat, and they used its entrails to catch fish, to use it as bait to catch fish, and they were able to survive. And after 24 days at sea, finally, they were rescued. I can't verify this second part of the story, but even if it's, even if it's not historically true, it serves as a parable of what we're talking about today to illustrate the peace offering. They say that years later, if you were to be near Switzerland, Florida, outside of Jacksonville, along the coast there, that you'd see an elderly man every Friday evening going out to the pier with a big bucket full of shrimp. The sky would fill up with birds, seagulls would flock in from everywhere, and there Eddie Rickenbacker in his old age would go out and feed those those seagulls, all of those shrimp, 
remembering in God's providence that seagull that saved his life. That captures a little something of what we're talking about here, except to an infinitely greater degree. We've already seen how that our Lord Jesus Christ, in his burnt offering on our behalf, provided all the atonement that we needed. He provided the spiritual food that we needed for our salvation when we were facing a fate far worse than death at sea. We were facing the eternal fires of hell. Christ interposed himself there at the cross for us. It's the only reason we're saved. And now, out of the overflow of that, in the peace offering, we're called not in the peace offering to obtain peace with God. That's already been obtained through Christ and His once-for-all sacrifice. But rather to live out of the overflow of that peace that Christ has purchased for us and to return thanksgiving to God and enjoy the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. The Levitical peace offering teaches us that since all we have is a gift from God, everything we have is a gift from God, and especially our salvation in Christ, then the only fitting response is for us as Christians to live a whole life of thanksgiving communion with God. That's exactly what we read in Hebrews 13 where the apostle is mentioning these Levitical sacrifices and the way they signify the death of Christ and how he purchased our salvation. And then out of the overflow of that, we offer these sacrifices of thanksgiving, one of which is the peace offering. Remember, as he told us, therefore by him, that is by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. This is what the peace offering is about. When we hear the word peace, this means more than just not being at war. It means much more than that. The term peace in the peace offering means spiritual health, spiritual well-being, and spiritual benefit and wholeness that God has given us in Christ. This peace is living in full friendship with God in Christ and enjoying the benefits of salvation that Christ has purchased for us. And all of this peace that we have is in and through Christ by whom we're reconciled to God. And that's why Apostle Paul can tell us in Ephesians that Jesus Christ is our peace. He is who, who has broken down that middle wall of separation. That's why I can tell us in Romans 5.1 that therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this peace that we have, the fact that now we're not the enemies of God and He's no longer our enemy because Christ has brought us into peace with God. He has satisfied the judgment of God on our behalf. This is the peace that it speaks of, and now we live in these benefits, and this is the way that the Heidelberg Catechism expresses this scriptural truth, that by virtue of the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him, so that the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So with this in mind and grouped around the three parties involved in this offering, 
In the peace offering, God himself was involved. The priests were involved and the offerer was involved. And grouped around this, our thought today, our, our theme is simply this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. We'll see four ways that this peace offering teaches us to give thanks to the Lord. First of all, oh, give thanks to the Lord, acknowledging God from whom you've received this peace. Give thanks, acknowledging God from whom you have received this peace. So how are we to acknowledge God in this thanksgiving? Well, we do it in the fear of God. We read that in chapter 3, verse 1. When his offering is a sacrifice of the peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Literally, in the Hebrew, before the face of the Lord. That's what the fear of God is. That's how God calls us as his people to live. Live our whole life in the presence of God. Live our whole life before the face of God, conscious that God sees and God knows that He loves us with an everlasting love. That He loves righteousness and hates iniquity. And by His grace, we live in a way that says we believe God sees us and knows us. Just like a child, you know how it is with your children, how they act a certain way when they're before your face. When mom and daddy are looking, there's a whole way of behavior But a child that's given to obedience and that their love for their parents is perfected, it doesn't matter if they see their daddy's face looking at them or not, they're going to behave the same way because they walk in the fear of their daddy, the love and respect of him. This is a picture of the fear of God before whose face we offer up this thanksgiving. And it also has to do with our constant awareness of our dependence upon God, just like our little one-and-a-half-year-old boy is so dependent on his mother, so clingy for his mother. He needs her. He, he finds comfort in her and all that she provides for him. As Christians, no matter how mature we become in this life, oh, may we always constantly be aware of our dependence upon God and walk in the fear of God before Him all of our days in this Thanksgiving. And we also do it in submission to God as our Supreme Lord. This passage teaches us that God deserves the best. This is part of the reason that nobody is to eat the fat. The fat is reserved only for God, we read in the text in 3.16. That best part, that richest part, God deserves it. It belongs to Him. We saw how that Christ, in Christ, God gave His best. Christ gave up His best. He gave up all His entire life for our salvation. And as Christians, God deserves us for us to give Him our best. He deserves our all. We saw how that the kidneys of the sacrificial animal are to be offered up to God. The kidneys in ancient thought are the seat of affection. Just like we think of the heart. You know, Valentine's symbol is a heart. The, the affections or emotions. Well, in ancient times, it was the kidneys. And you'll find this language throughout Scripture if you look in the original Hebrew and Greek. 
And in this, God deserves our all, our whole person, including our affections. And we see this fulfilled perfectly in our Lord Jesus Christ, as in John 2.17, when he purged the temple because of the mockery they were making of God's house. And the disciples remembered the words of the psalm, that it was speaking of Christ, the zeal of your house. The zeal of your house has consumed me. And our Lord Jesus lived in His earthly ministry, His whole life, His entire self, all of His affections as man were devoted to God. And as He went to the cross, He paid for all the times that We have loved sin rather than God, or we have given half-hearted affection to God. Christ atones for that, that and calls us to live, giving our whole selves up to God. God is worthy. This also reminds us, as we come with this thanksgiving and submission to God who deserves all, who deserves the best, that all gifts... Remember, James tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. All gifts, including our entire life, comes from the triune God. And we are to return it to the triune God in worship and thanksgiving. And that's what Paul teaches us in Romans eleven thirty six: For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. All things that we have, and especially our, thanksgiving, our, our, our salvation in Christ, are of the Father eternally. They're through the Son. And we return thanks to God by the Spirit in all praise to our triune God. We read how that in this wave offering, how that they would take the, the thigh, or it can be translated the shoulder of that sacrificial animal, and wave it before the Lord, before they offer it. This, this is significant. This signifies that, God, this belongs to you. We're dedicating this to you. And I exhort you as a Christian to lift up your entire self, your entire life as an offering of thanks to God, like this peace offering. Acknowledging Him who gave it and submitting your entire self to Him. We acknowledge God in this thanksgiving also by walking in repentance and holiness. Now we read in 7.20 how that the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. And I remind you that all of us by our sins are rendered unclean, and that's why Christ was cut off for us at the cross. He fell under the curse and wrath. So as Christians, when we're united to Christ, it is absolutely impossible to be ever ununited from Christ. You're eternally united to Christ. But part of the way that you are marked out from those who are still in their sins is you repent of sin and you trust in Christ and you will to the day you die. That's the blessed doctrine of perseverance of the saints. 
And in this, we remember that the only way to maintain joyful thanksgiving is daily cleansing by the blood of Christ. Daily repentance, turning from sin. And here, God calls us to that. As we offer thanksgiving to God, acknowledging God who gave this peace, we do it with joy. This is implied in the fact that this is a sacrificial meal. Now, the burnt offering that we saw a few weeks ago is a different kind of offering than this offering. Remember the burnt offering? All of it is burned up before God, and it mentions atonement and sin in that context. Well, this offering is not all burned up before God. The priest eats part of the meat, and the offerer eats part of the meat, and his family with him, the whole group with him. This is more like a a holy barbecue party where they're thanking God and enjoying and feasting in thanksgiving to God. And that's why in Deuteronomy 12.7, in speaking of this, these offerings, it says, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all which you have, to which you have put your hand, you and your households in which the Lord God has blessed you. This is a call to rejoicing in God, thanking Him for all the good gifts He's given us, and especially the gift of His Son. And to do it, yes, In duty, it is our duty to do that, but beyond duty to delight. This offering is not commanded. God doesn't command them to bring a peace offering. He says, when you bring it, this is how to do it. God expects they will spontaneously offer thanks to them. It's the only fitting response. And you know the difference between duty and delight, you who are married. Imagine if you as a husband came home from work and you had a dozen roses and a box of your wife's favorite chocolates. She opens the door. You give her those flowers and chocolates. She's swept off her feet. Oh, thank you. Thank you, honey, for this. That's my duty. I'm your husband. That's what I'm supposed to do. Imagine the husband comes home from work, he's weary and tired, his wife has cooked his favorite dish and that homemade dessert that he loves, maybe that homemade from scratch apple pie, he sits down, oh thank you for this, that's my duty, I'm your wife, that's what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? But how different if he comes home with those flowers and chocolates, she says thank you and he says, oh it's my delight, it's my joy. He sits down at the table and he, he enjoys that meal and thank you, honey, for this meal. Oh, it's my delight. That changes everything. God is calling us as His people to thank Him, to return thanksgiving out of the delight of the overflow for all He's freely done for us in Christ. And in this, we can say things like this. Oh, I'm so glad I'm justified. I'm so glad I'm being sanctified. I'm I'm so thankful to God that I will be glorified. And oh, I'm thankful to God I get to give money in the offering today in public worship. It ought to just be 
the natural overflow of the delight that God has blessed us with, we ought to delight in returning thanks to God in all things. So this is how we acknowledge God in this thanksgiving. Well, what are we to acknowledge God for in in this thanksgiving? There are three different occasions in these passages, three different occasions for which they would offer a peace offering. And three things for which we should offer up thanksgiving to God in Christ. The first one is for a specific divine deliverance. When God has granted a specific deliverance. We read of that in 7.12 where he says that the offerer can offer it for a thanksgiving, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And we see this later on in scripture in 2 Samuel 24. Remember when David sinned and God unleashed that killing angel upon Jerusalem and it slew 70,000 people. And finally, God gave the remedy and God was about to stop that plague and David purchases the threshing floor of Ornan and it says there that he gave burnt offerings and peace offerings. It's in response to God's gracious intervention, a divine intervention, a divine deliverance. You ever been coming home from work and you came one hair from, from getting in a head-on collision? I remember here when I came to an IBS module a few years ago starting up my truck and somehow, I don't know how, I've never done this before, I left it in gear, that big uh, Dodge Ram 2500, and came in one hair. When I cranked it up, I was standing outside of it, I cranked it and it took off driving by itself. I came one hair from getting dragged under and run over by my own truck freak accident. My life just was hanging by a thread and I was so shaken up after that. You know what I should do when I experience something like that? Give thanks to God. Not just by myself. Go home and tell my family. Come to the Lord's Day worship next Sunday and prayer meeting. Thank God He spared my life. That's one thing. That's one reason. Another is specific answered prayer. God's answered a prayer for you, offer up a spiritual peace offering, offer up spiritual thanksgiving offerings. This is what Hannah did literally under the old covenant. God calls us to do spiritually under the new covenant. When Hannah, remember in 1 Samuel 1, was praying for a child and she was barren, she vowed to God if God gave her a son, she would give him back to God. And when God answered that prayer... Here comes Hannah with three bulls, a very expensive peace offering, and offers it up in thanksgiving to God for specific answered prayer. This teaches us to give more attention to stopping to thank God when He answers prayer. They could offer up this peace offering in general for God's General mercies and grace. And basically, this is the third thing you can give thanks for. For all things at all times. Just everything. Everything, even the bitter providences that God has brought upon you. Even as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
This is what the apostle teaches us in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see our sinful failing in giving thanks, our sinful hoggishness, as we're like that barnyard hog, it just rushes in. You go pour the slop in the trough, he just rushes in, sticks his head in the trough and eats until it's gone and then runs away. Oh, isn't that how we are so many times with God's blessings? We pray and pray for something. God answers the prayer and some little tip of that, you know, some little thanks to giving or some little mention of it or God spares our life or the fact that God has given us everything we've ever received in our entire life and especially our salvation in Christ and how little thanksgiving we return. We're so much like that hog. But all not Christ who lived perfectly in our place and always rendered perfect thanksgiving to God and we live and approach God in Christ and now out of the overflow God calls us to look up to Him and to give constant thanksgiving in all things and purposeful thanksgiving in specific things. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks acknowledging God from whom this peace has come. Secondly, oh, give thanks to the Lord in Christ, by whom God has given you this peace. Our thanksgiving is always in Christ, and we read that in Ephesians 5.20, that we're to give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is beyond the general kind of thanksgiving that even the unconverted owe to God by the light of nature. This is that we are united to God in Christ and reconciled and right with God. And this is the context wherein we give thanks to God. And this is why Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to the Lord in Christ. In His death. In Christ's death. We saw this in the sacrificial animal of the ox and the sheep and the goat in this passage. This reminds us to give thanks for Christ's death, which was a bloody death. Even this bloodless sacrifice, the aspects of it, we saw the grain offering and now part of this offering are the the cakes of bread that they would offer. Even those bloodless sacrifices were always accompanied by blood because every morning and every evening was the burnt offering where blood was shed for atonement for the people. And that's why Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9 that according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And for us to be able to render with a good conscience and render thanksgiving to God that God accepts, it's taken the price of the blood of Christ to redeem us. This is the only reason we have this access to God. And in this passage, we may ask, well, why is it forbidden that they eat blood? Well, there could be several reasons. One could be because of idolatry, and Psalm 16 mentions this, I want I I will not participate in the drink offerings of their blood as the pagans would drink blood. That may be because pagans did it. It may be partly because 
God is teaching them to esteem the value of life as in the Noahic covenant. God told them not to eat the blood of the animal for the life of the flesh is in the blood in Genesis 9. But the main reason that God forbids them to eat blood is because it so clearly signifies the holy blood of Christ by which we're all redeemed. And he says this very clearly in Leviticus 17, 10, and 11, But whatever man of the house of Israel, the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person. He says he will cut him off, and he tells them why in seventeen eleven. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. I remind you, That it is the very blood of Christ who's made atonement so that instead of having a guilty conscience and running from God, you can boldly approach God's throne and give thanks for all things. And this is the only true thanksgiving to God is that which is offered in Christ. And I exhort you Christians to keep offering up this thanksgiving and do it boldly. And do it in joy. And you who are not in Christ, those of you who still live in sin and love it, Oh, dear sinner, come to Christ, be united to God, and experience and participate in this thanksgiving, the spiritual offering. It teaches us to give thanks to God in Christ, not only for His bloody death, but His humiliating death. Unlike the other, unlike the burnt offering, which had to be a male without blemish, this, this could be a male or female without blemish. And in part, this signifies that just as the female, or as the New Testament tells us, Peter tells us that the wife is the weaker vessel. That's not to degrade women, but she is the weaker when compared to men. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ who in His human weakness suffered in His humiliation for us as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. For He, though He was crucified in weakness, yet He lives by the power of God. It was an effectual death. Offering of the male without blemish signifies Christ's strength and His fortitude and His active obedience. As Christ said, what no other man could ever say in John 17, 4, who of us could ever pray this as Jesus prayed to the Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. This was an effectual sacrifice. He rendered all the obedience in our place that was needed for the active righteousness of Christ to be credited to us. We read of the fat which was to be offered to God, the fat that surrounded the the inner organs specifically. This is the fat that it's speaking of. Remember how this is the best and the richest part, and Christ more than pays for all of our transgressions. We read how that the breast and the right shoulder Or the right thigh, you can translate it either way. In this, you remember, just as the breast is given and 
This signifies wisdom or heart wisdom. And the right shoulder signifies strength. We remember how that Christ who was offered for us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.24, that He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. An effectual death. And even in our offering leavened bread in this offering, remember in the burnt offering, or, or rather the grain offering, there could be no leaven in the bread. In this offering, it says that you can offer leavened bread. Not on the altar. Leaven is never to be offered on the altar, but they can offer it and eat it as part of this sacrifice. And this reminds us that in Christ, even our worship, which is sinfully imperfect and always mingled with sin to some degree in this life, yet God receives it and he receives our good works, which are always mingled with sin, just like this bread was mingled with leaven. He receives it in Christ, in and for Christ. Until the day in glory that will be purified forever and never will our works or worship be mingled with any sin. Remember this today, remember the death of Christ and give thanksgiving for it as we participate in the Lord's Supper. And we thank God and we thank Christ for what he did in his death for us. We give God to thanks in Christ, Christ in his death, Christ in his glorious return. In 717, we read a phrase that when you ever see this phrase in the Old Testament, you need to perk your ears up. And that is the third day. We read in 717 how that at the third day, they were to burn up that sacrifice if it was not eaten by then. Remember how Jesus told the Emmaus disciples, Remember when he appeared to them and began to expound to them the things in the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. himself. Remember Jesus saying this, thus it is written. Okay, where is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Jesus is saying that the Old Testament scriptures teach the third day resurrection of Christ. I could take you to a number of places, but this is one of those places where it signifies, as the Puritan Henry Ainsworth said, that third day here and that that sacrifice being burned up by the third day if it wasn't eaten. He says it chiefly seems to foreshadow the time of Christ who rising from death the third day abolished all legal sacrifices. Not only Christ in his death and his glorious resurrection, but it signifies Christ in his session. And we give thanks to God for Christ in his session. That is his being seated at the Father's right hand where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And we read in 3.5 again this phrase where they are to burn it up on the altar, that part of the sacrifice. And literally, remember, turn it into smoke. That a smoke ascends up to God as we saw and the, the sweet aroma goes up before God. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, this signifies Christ and He's well pleasing to the Father on our behalf. It's His glorious session for us. And also His glorious return. As we read in 
7.20, how that the offerer had to be purified, and if he's unclean, he'll be cut off. And we remember the need for daily confession of sin, daily repentance, and daily trusting and looking unto Christ, and daily experiencing the subjective cleansing of sin as God's people. We remember that there's a day when Christ will come the second time to put away all sin. Though we have need for daily cleansing now, we'll never have daily need for daily cleansing again. We'll be perfectly purified forever. And that's why Paul said concerning the church that Christ will present her to himself a glorious church, not having wrinkle or any such thing, spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Oh, give thanks to the Lord in Christ by whom you've received this peace. Third, give thanks to the Lord in support of His ministers by the ministry of whom God gave you this peace. Give thanks to God in support of His ministers by the ministry of whom He gave you this peace. The priests were the second party. God is the first party in this sacrifice. The priests are the second party who participates in these offerings. They eat part of the offerings with the offerer. And we remember that all Christians are priests. We only have one high priest and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Peter told us in 1 Peter 2.9, remember that all Christians are priests. But here, especially in view, are the preachers of the gospel. As Pastor Jarrett mentioned earlier, in the book of Hebrews, we have an infallible, inspired commentary The Holy Spirit inspiring the Holy Scriptures, commenting on the book of Leviticus. That is an infallible commentary. It cannot be proven to be in error. Well, Paul comments on these Levitical sacrifices. And he connects it to the New Testament preaching of the Word. And this is why Paul tells us in the New Testament... In places like 1 Corinthians 4.15, and, and rather in later on in 1 Corinthians 9, he's arguing that ministers, gospel ministers, gospel preachers, should be financially supported. And where does Paul go to prove this? He quotes from the Levitical sacrifices, and he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things, that is the Levitical priests, eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Okay, so we've read about these priests. They get a portion of the meat. They get a portion of the bread. It sustains them. They, they live off of that. They minister the holy things. Okay, Paul is talking about that. And then he says in 1 Corinthians nine fourteen, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. There's a fittingness of support of gospel preachers. 
And Paul reminds us of the great weight of this in places like 1 Corinthians 4.15 about just how significant the preaching ministry is. He says, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Oh yes, we're born again by the Spirit of God. We're born of water and the Spirit, John 3 tells us, but... In a certain manner of speaking, we are begotten by the preached word and can be said to be begotten, Paul says here, by the gospel minister in that as God's instrument. He reminds us the importance of it in Romans 10, 14. How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We would ask, why is this so important? Why does Paul compare the New Testament preaching ministry and its need to be supported financially? Why would he compare that to the Levitical priests and their partaking of the offerings? Well, this is why it's so important. Because of what the Jerusalem church elders said in Acts 6-4 when they appointed the first deacons. They're doing this that the deacons may take care of the general needs of the church so that we may constantly devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is why it's so important for them to be supported so they don't have to be encumbered with a secular job. They can devote themselves to what Paul calls labor in word and doctrine. He tells Timothy, he calls it a labor I heard years ago of a preacher from Mississippi that preached mainly during the early and mid-1900s, Percy Ray. He was a younger pastor and he'd come to pastor there at a rural church and he was out one day going out to go to his members' different job places and visit them and one of his members was a single mother and she was out in the cotton field down on her knees picking cotton. Pastor Percy Ray went out there in the cotton field and asked her how she's doing, anything he can pray for about, and he said he's doing his pastoral visitation. He said that woman looked at him, she lifted up her hands, her hands were bloody from picking that cotton, there's a a sharp texture to it that will make your fingers bleed. She held up her bloody hands, she said, preacher, you see these hands? You know why I'm doing this? I'm doing this so I can support me and my son. And so I can come to church on Sunday and I can help support you in your ministry so you can go and bury your face in the Word of God and bury yourself in the prayer closet so when I bring my boy to worship on Sunday and you preach to us that you've got something to preach to us. He said he went back home and got his face in the book and on his knees in prayer. Reminds us how important this is and Paul reminds us what a debt of gratitude we owe to God for gospel preachers. And Paul could even say, not only to the Corinthians, I begot you through the gospel. He said to Philemon in, verse, uh, in Philemon 19 that you owe me your own self. In a manner of speaking, Philemon owed his salvation, his, the salvation of his eternal soul, to the preaching ministry of Paul who preached the gospel to him. 
All the while, of course, God gets all the glory and salvation is of the Lord, but God uses means and the chief means is gospel preaching. So we owe a great debt of gratitude to God for gospel preachers. You might can think of somebody at some point in your life that saved your life. Maybe a good doctor, maybe a co-worker, maybe a fellow soldier in the military. A few years back, I saw a man at my grandmother's funeral, Randy Barton. And when I saw him and his wife come walking up, I, I, it's all I could do not to tear up. Because back when I was seven years old in the Little River in eastern Tennessee, there we were rafting down that river. And as a little boy, somehow I got flipped upside down in those rapids. And my head was down under the water and my feet were caught in the tube. And I would have likely drowned. And Randy Barton dove in, busted his glasses to pieces, dove in and grabbed me and took me out. And when I saw him at that funeral, I said, there's a man that saved my life. Oh, my life in God's providence to Randy Barton. But oh, my soul in the providence of God to Randy Bain, my father, who was the one who preached faith into my heart by the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan brings this out. In describing evangelists, do you remember how Christian was burdened down with that pack of sin in the city of destruction? He was going to perish. Looking back, he says this about evangelists. He says, when I was under the fears of destruction and I did not know where to go, by chance there came a man, even to me, as I was trembling and weeping, whose name is evangelist, and he directed me to the narrow gate, which else I never should have found. Oh, thank God for sending a gospel preacher. How can they hear without a preacher? How can he preach except he be sent? This is why Paul tells us to bear with gospel ministers. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, this is one implication of what he says here. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God may, uh, the power may be of God and not of us. Oh, dear Christian, when you're mindful of the sinful flaws of your ministers, remember this, that God gives treasures in these weak earthen vessels, these weak jars of clay. And it's by the preaching of the gospel that not just anybody can do. That's what Ephesians 4 is about, that the ascended Christ gave gifts unto men, some pastors and teachers, not all. He gave preachers to do something not all Christians can do. And part of that is for your conversion. Preaching is the begetting ordinance. It begets faith in your heart by the power of the Spirit. The sacrament that He ministers to you is the nourishing ordinance. When we partake of the Lord's table, it is strengthening your faith. And it's signification. And it's not just in your conversion, but it's also in your perseverance that preaching has a key role. And we read this in texts such as 1 Corinthians 1.18 where Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
You say, well, I'm already saved. Yeah, you are, but you're still being saved. And you will continue to be saved until you are glorified at the final resurrection. And God does that chiefly through the preached word. And Herman Bovink reminds us of this in his Reformed Dogmatics in Volume 3, speaking of perseverance of the saints. He reminds us that in our effectual calling, that calling starts when we're converted, but it continues all through our life. And this is how Bovink puts it. Calling, the preaching of the gospel, precedes all other benefits of salvation. That calling, however, serves not only at the start to invite non-believers to faith and repentance, but also to admonish and warn, to teach and lead believers permanently. The proclamation of the word continues without ceasing to the end of life, continues to insist on the mortification of the old and the putting on of the new man. So, old dear Christian, in gratitude to God for the salvation of your eternal soul, give thanks to God for gospel ministers by whom he brought you the preaching through which his spirit worked to bring you to God, and by which preaching God will cause you to persevere to glory so that when you look back, you might not remember the sermon you heard seven weeks ago. You don't remember the lunch you ate seven weeks ago, I guarantee you. But it's nourishing you. And when you look back, by the grace of God, God will have caused you to persevere in repentance and faith, mainly through the preaching of the Word. And therefore, it is right and fitting to support gospel ministers. And I commend you for that. Not only your salvation, but hopefully all your children's salvation. God accomplishes that through preaching. So give thanks for your ministers, your, your weak, flawed, earthenware ministers. Because it's God who gives heavenly treasure even through them. Fourth and finally, oh give thanks to the Lord with His people among whom He has given you peace. Give thanks to the Lord with His people among whom He has given you peace. The whole family was invited to partake of this offerer's sacrificial offering of the meat and the bread in this holy space. And this signifies the new covenant community of the church. It's not my Bible and me under a tree. It's not me taking a hike on Sunday morning because I can worship God just as good as I could in church. No, it is the covenant community of the people of God, the whole body of Christ. And we're joined as one body here in this particular church. This is the context for this life of thanksgiving. And it's in acceptance and delight. God accepts us and delights in us in Christ as we bunch of rotten, hell-deserving sinners as considered in ourselves as we come together to worship God. God delights in us. He delights in our praise because we're in Christ. He accepts us in Christ. And then we accept one another. And that's what Paul told the Romans. 
Romans 15, 5 to 7. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us for the glory of God. God has received you, hell-deserving sinner. You, deserve, you, you receive your brothers in Christ who are also hell-deserving sinners like you are. Is what Paul is saying. It's with one another in acceptance and delight. And you find these exhortations to unity all through the New Testament. It's a thanksgiving with God's people, in close communion with God's people. And they're sharing a meal together. It signifies what that signifies all over the world. There's a closeness of communion. There's no substitute in a relationship for sitting down and enjoying a meal together. doesn't matter where you are in the world. You sit down and eat together. There's a bond of friendship. There is a level of communion that cannot be attained any other way. And Paul reminds us of this in our union with Christ. And therefore we're united to each other in Christ. He tells us. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This is our significant of our union with Christ. The bread which we eat, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Walk in unity and peace and love, in communion, in close communion. Feasting upon Christ in peace with one another in thanksgiving to God. And you realize, I'll remind you, do you realize sometimes we forget the entire New Testament, we think about it as the the 27 books of the New Testament, the entire New Testament is compiled of church documents, either addressed specifically to churches or people within churches. Or to instruct people in their life in the church. In this way, we could reimagine that that work of John Bunyan that's been such a blessing, Pilgrim's Progress, but it's not infallible. We could improve it a little bit in this way. Instead of Pilgrim going to the celestial city together, yeah, and sometimes he has a friend with him, but with uh, him going alone most of the time. It should be an entire congregation traveling to the celestial city together, walking through the valley of the shadow of death together, facing Apollyon together. Like the Welsh Tract Church, a particular Baptist church in 1701, that whole congregation uprooted and they left Britain to go to the new world. The entire congregation embarked on that potentially dangerous and deadly sea voyage across the Atlantic Ocean, and they eventually settled in modern-day Delaware and were part of the particular Baptist uh, Philadelphia Association. This ain't no Lone Ranger religion. We're all in this together on this voyage to the celestial city. And we here as a particular church. And I encourage you in joyful thanksgiving, give yourself to God in thanksgiving and to one another in close communion. And I warn you, dear believer, don't waste your 
life and endanger your soul in this pipe dream that there's some perfect church out there with perfect ministers and perfect members. You know it's not true. And instead of dreaming of greener pastures, oh, I encourage you with thanksgiving to God, enjoy the green pastures where your shepherd has placed you and benefit here in the body. We're to give thanks to God with his people, among whom he has given us peace. And based on this, dear Christians, let me exhort you to grow in thanksgiving. Are we growing in thanksgiving by the grace of God? Grow in this thanksgiving verbally. And how you offer praise and thanks to God verbally. We read of that in Hebrews 13.5. The fruit of our lips. The sacrifice of thanksgiving. And I encourage you. I want to ask you dear Christian. If you think about complaint and praise as a ratio. What is the ratio of your complaints to your praise for what God has done? Like Job said. It's God who gives and God has taken away. And if we're truly thanks, living in thanksgiving by the grace of God, we will give more time and more attention to the fact that God has given than the fact that God has taken away. When people ask us how we're doing and we respond, now I'm not saying that we should put on a fake smile and always say, oh, I'm doing fine. No, that's not the case. We don't want that. We, we, want, we want to be authentic with each other. But when you're asked that question, how are you? Think about it in light of this, that apart from God's grace, you'd be burning in the fires of hell for now and eternity. But God has saved you in Christ and lavished upon you heavenly riches, unimaginable in Christ. Now, let's think about how we're doing and let's think about our whole life in light of that. We ought to have more thanksgiving in our prayers, more time and attention devoted when God answers a prayer that we ought to give more attention and more time thanking God for that. Grow in thanksgiving, not only verbally, but purposefully. If you've had a near-death encounter and God spared your life, if you've had an answered prayer, you got that diagnosis back from the doctor and you thought you were terminally ill and now you realize you've got a clear bill of health, or just for all the general things, everything we receive in life, which is a gift from God. How about throwing a party? A good, holy, Christian party and inviting family and church family and neighbors and do it for the purpose of saying, I want to thank God for this answered prayer, for sparing my life in this way, or just because God has been so good to me. Now, it's not commanded in this passage. God doesn't command them to do this peace offering. But why should He? It's to be expected because such grace has been received that we would, out of the overflow of it, render thanks to God not only verbally and purposefully, but let us grow in this thanksgiving abundantly. As Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 9, he speaks about giving bountifully. He's talking about financial giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. 
Let us grow in seeking to be as bountiful as possible, as generous as possible in our thanksgiving to God. If you saw that elderly man going out to the pier every Friday evening with a big five-gallon bucket full of shrimp feeding those seagulls, oh, how much does that cost? What a waste. What an idiot. Well, you spend 24 days in the Pacific Ocean and think you're going to die and you're starving and dying of dehydration and that seagull shows up and then see how you feel about it. What he did was fitting. It wasn't crazy. It was, it was appropriate. Infinitely more so, all that God's done for us in Christ, we could never give back too much or too abundantly. Five hours on Lord's Day as you show up at prayer meeting at 10, you don't get out till 3 from Sunday school. Oh, that's just too much. Oh, that, that's just crazy. That's what the world thinks. Oh, no. God saved us from eternally, eternity of misery that we deserved. He has made us co-heirs with Christ. We're united to God. We've been gifted His Spirit. The best we can give, the most we can give is always appropriate. And now, out of the overflow of this grace, as Paul tells us in the letter to the Hebrews, by Him, by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifices of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Dear sinner today, God invites you to partake of Christ and the forgiveness of sins and become a worshiper of Him and render joyful thanksgiving to Him all your days. Amen.